Hello and welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara and I am your host. Welcome guys, this is episode 13, lovely to have you here. If you're a new listener, welcome, thank you so much for joining us and for any regular listeners, thank you so much for coming back, I really appreciate it. Two weeks ago we had an episode with Extinction Rebellion, Cormac Nugent was on chatting and it got a lot of traction and a lot of shares which is amazing so if you haven't listened to that episode please go back and do that and if you're new to this podcast I mean there's a lot of episodes not a lot of episodes 13 episodes to catch up on but if you want to know why I started this podcast there's a 10 minute introduction uh, which is episode one so if you want to go back give that a listen uh, save me going over it again and again for any regular listeners that are like yeah car we know what you're doing and just get on with the thing but yes thank you anyway so much for joining me you've no idea when I meet people in the real world that are like oh I listen to your podcast it means so much I can't like part of me obviously that's the point of it but part of me still can't believe that there's actually people listening to this so thank you guys so so much now obviously since last two weeks ago the podcast released then We had the climate strike, the global climate strike led initially by Greta Thunberg who started striking just over a year ago every Friday and then Fridays for Future was set up and basically we've had two major global strikes for climate then and the one on the 20th of September was just amazing. The buzz in Dublin was phenomenal. It was really nice atmosphere you're surrounded by a lot of like-minded people but it was really emotional as well very emotionally charged and if you want to feel like if you want a snippet of what it was like there's another podcast another Irish podcast set up by two women called Climate Queens the Climate Queens podcast and they recorded interviews of people that were there on Friday the 20th and also you can hear some of the the children that were on stage speaking so if you want to check that out do climate queens podcast it's another great irish podcast all about education around the climate crisis which is really good i i love it myself and yeah i i've so much faith in the in the future generation but obviously it can't all be up to them and they can't they need to be able to go to school and you know they're not they don't even have a right to vote or anything right now so a lot of it is down to us to to fix the climate crisis now so we need to keep pressure on our government and rebellion week as was mentioned in the last episode is coming up as well from the 7th to the 13th of October similar to what happened Earlier in the year, there was a shutdown in London where five major locations were shut down, blockaded by climate change protesters. And that's going to be happening worldwide again over that week in October. And wherever you are in the world, if there's an Extinction Rebellion organisation in your capital city or in your in your country check them out because there's about over 50 countries are taking part so far and if there isn't an extinction rebellion set one up yourself and then cause non-violent disruptions direct action 
get the government's attention for system change because that's what we need. So Extinction Rebellion are still looking for some help. They're looking for food and for cooks and for generators. And if you have any of that or just check out their Facebook and their Instagram or email them at xorireland at gmail.com. They'll be looking for performers and artists as well. So find your local Extinction Rebellion group on Facebook and see what they need for Rebellion Week. It's going to be amazing. Now, I know a lot of people are going to think, oh, you're disrupting the city. But unfortunately, it is the only way that the government will make any steps towards critical system change politely asking and waiting for the next vote to come in to vote candidates and TDs into position that you believe are going to fight for this won't work not alone it won't work and personal choices alone won't work we need a combined effort and the government needs to mosey on and get stuff done and we need to tell them that they need to do it sooner rather than later which is what this just week-long disruption is going to be this blockade in Dublin and in capital cities worldwide so please do please get involved the next episode I release will be after rebellion week is over and I'll give you a summary of how it went and hopefully it'll be positive it'll be good and we got to stay there for the week and the government made some action so but now I just want to quickly address as well Greta Thunberg recently made an amazing speech and in the speech she got a little bit emotional and there's been so many people coming out saying she is a puppet, she is being used, her parents are using her or she's very emotionally unstable, we worry for her health, she shouldn't have this kind of burden on her shoulders, she should be in school, she should be in hospital and I just want to weigh in on this because when I was her age, I was very much aware of the damage that humans were doing to the planet, it's particularly to animals. I've always had a huge soft spot for animals. And I remember when I was about 11 or 12, like I made a PowerPoint presentation about the environmental crisis and it had some background tracks like Colors of the Wind by Pocahontas and I'm pretty sure Michael Jackson's We Gotta Make a Change was in there and everything and it was all like photographs and descriptions of of deforestation and droughts and animal abuse and all this was in there and then I made my parents and my brothers watch it and then I left the room because I was I was too it, I was too cringy to to stay in there and watch it with them but like I was writing poetry about this you know I I I really cared at her age as well and there are a lot of people and children out there her age who are aware of this horrible predicament that we're in and to do get emotional about it, obviously you're going to get, an, I'm nearly getting emotional now. Like if you care so much about something and you have this very kind of high pressure scenario where you're sitting in front of hundreds of people and you know there's people watching you. I mean, you could be speaking to a crowd full of world leaders or you could be just speaking to two of your best friends. And if you're speaking from the heart and if you care about this you will get emotional. Well, not you will definitely, but you very well may. And I know I would, basically. If I was Greta Thunberg, I wouldn't be able to speak. I don't even know how she makes it through her speeches without blowing a casket. Like, seriously, I personally would not be able to do what she does because I would 
get too emotional. I would get too upset as soon as you opened up my tap of <laughs> of the world is on fire emotions. I'll never, I'll never stop. Like that's just a personal thing. And for people saying, there's been an odd comment as well about, oh, those people striking. I feel so sorry for them because in 40 years time when there's nothing wrong they're gonna so regret that they wasted their time striking because you know climate change isn't a big deal and to those people I don't think you listen to this podcast but if you know anyone who thinks this I mean climate change yes for one that has always happened but never to the extent and to the rapid pace that it is happening now ever. Usually when climate change happens, species can adapt as they go. There is no adapting here. It is happening way too fast and humans are weighing in hugely on how fast it is going. We are speeding the process up and that is the problem. Not the fact that it is climate change that's why people stopped calling it climate change and it's been called the climate crisis is because it is going too fast and at this rate the earth won't be able there'll be no it won't be able to balance itself and sea levels will rise and things will only get worse like way 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 worse and also I would much rather regret wasting one two or maybe let's just say two weeks of my life getting out on the streets and protesting I would rather regret that thinking what a waste of time than regret not getting out on the streets and not doing something and then in 10 15 20 years time realizing it's too late one of those regrets is far more appealing to me and I'd much rather be out on the street going you know what just in case let's get this done and if it doesn't happen and it's all grand well sure look then it's all grand but if you don't get out on the streets and you don't get involved and then it all turns to beep then that's a bigger regret to have but the fact that there are so many people coming out and talking against the climate crisis now which I guess in some way is kind of good because obviously it's really hitting the mainstream news now, which is brilliant. More and more people are becoming aware of it, but it's not up to people to fix the whole thing. We need the governments and we need the the richest people on the planet to stop destroying the planet, basically, is what we need. Anyway, okay, right, that's my fortnightly rant over. Let's get into this week's episode. So, I interviewed Melanie, who is the like executive director now of Seal Rescue Ireland, and she was so lovely to talk to, and this is just an amazing episode. Before I play the interview, I just want to include a distressor warning here that there are some gruesome descriptions of seals being sick in here, and unfortunately it's it's not all good news either. We do hear some sad seal seal stories as well. So I just want to let you guys know that you can skip over this one if you're not in the right headspace to listen to it right now. Or if you don't want young kids that are around listening to this, then that's completely okay. There's a load of other not so sad episodes to listen to previous to this. 
but just want to include that in there. So this episode, yeah, Melanie from Cedar Rescue Ireland, she she was so lovely to talk to, really educational, really newer stuff. I really want to interview her again because she's done a lot of conservation work with other animals as well, which is amazing. But for this one, we're solely focusing on seals. I learned so much from this episode. I hope you guys do too. And stick around and I'll catch you after. All right, enjoy. Melanie, thank you so much for inviting me down to Seal Rescue Ireland. I'm having the best time being surrounded by the most adorable seals and have a tour of the place. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So I guess, like I do with all my guests, can we start off by getting to find out a little bit more about yourself, where you're from. People can probably hear, well, they will hear, you don't have a Wexford accent. Not a Wexford accent. <laughs> so like, where are you from and how did you get into conservation and then seal rescue? Sure. So, um, so I'm from Virginia um, in the United States. So hi, I've basically been really involved in conservation since I can remember. I've just always spent a lot of times in the woods, um, playing in the creeks, playing in the swamp, just really loved the outdoors, loved animals from a very early age. Um, So I studied environmental science. um, And then I've worked in a lot of different field jobs doing uh, wildlife um, research and conservation. um, And actually came here on holiday with my family and just stumbled across um, this organization, which at the time was called Dingle Wildlife and Seal Sanctuary, and just applied for an internship on the spot. Um, I was kind of I guess, affected by the seals the same way you are, where you're just immediately sucked in and just fall in love and just really, really wanted to um, get involved with the work. So I interned for about three months. I think this was four or five years ago. And then I went on. Um, I did some wildlife conservation work in West Africa. Um, I also worked for the San San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research. And then ultimately was called back to be the operations manager. So I've been here for two and a half years now. The organization has grown quite a bit. Um, Now I'm executive director. We have a new operations manager. Our team has gotten a lot bigger, a lot more continuity, which means we've been able to divert our efforts to not just seal rehab, but also proactive conservation. So we do a lot of different programs to try to protect the health of the environment and therefore the animals within. Amazing. And when you were on holidays here, had you worked in conservation? I know you'd studied environmental science, so had you already done kind of work similar to that and you saw oh this sounds something that I can do or was it just completely I've never done something like that let's do it it wasn't exactly out of left field Um, I was actually working as a natural resource advisor for the BP oil spill response on the Gulf of Mexico Um, so you know horrific environmental disaster Mm -hmm. and they were cleaning up the oil and in the process it was my job to make sure that they weren't doing any further damage so doing wildlife surveys endangered species surveys just protecting the nest birds and the sea turtles and everything else that called the beach home and that project wrapped up right before my trip to Ireland so I was feeling kind of directionless at the time and this just you know it it just hit me like a brick I was like this is what I need to do next (laughs) yeah unreal that's so cool so you then came to Sea Rescue Ireland you came back after all those years you were working and I was saying before the interview started we could probably do a whole other episode on all the other conservation and the work that you've done which is amazing but let's get down to the seals so can you just tell us a little bit about the seals specifically the ones that we have in Ireland like 
What are they? <laughs> seals, yes. So we have two species of seals in Ireland. They're phocids, so they're true seals, which means earless. They Everything is completely streamlined and hydrodynamic. They're very clumsy on land, but they're very swift and agile in water. Uh, they're actually apex species um, in these waters. So therefore, they have a really important impact on the local ecosystem. So the two species of seals that we have here are gray seals and common seals. And the common seals breed during the summer months, so that's when we get in the most common seal pups. And then the autumn is when the gray seals start pupping, so then we start getting lots of grays. Mm. So you'll have a few grays now, probably at this stage. You've you've won right now. Yes. This is the end of August. Um, so they'll probably just start coming in. Yes, like most places. We're, yeah. this is the quiet before the, the storm. Yeah. So uh, we're expecting usually picks up pretty hard come October, November, just rescues all the time and then kind of trickles off in uh, December, January, February. And then we start releasing them as they get healthy and big enough to be released. And then the springtime is our slowest time of year. And yeah. we're just waiting for common seal pupping season to start, which usually is like late May, early June. Okay. How are their populations been doing around Ireland? I presume they're native, so they've always kind of been here. Mm-hmm. So I presume us humans have not done them much favours over the years. So how have their populations been doing? So we don't really have um, great studies done. We don't have hard numbers. And throughout history, we haven't really had hard numbers. So it's hard to say what the background rate is. But I do know that common seals are on a decline. There's only about 5,000 left in Ireland for whatever reasons, environmental pressures, maybe becoming outcompeted by the gray seals, which are the larger of the two. Gray seal numbers are recovering. There's about 10 to 12,000 maybe um, around the Irish coast. But those numbers almost were wiped out um, in the early 1900s. Gray seals actually almost went extinct in Ireland because of hunting. Um, So they became protected species. It's illegal to hunt them. Um, So because of that, their numbers have started to recover. But yeah, it's about 12,000. And we don't know how many historically there were. Um, We do know that in the UK, there's about 150,000, which is right across the water. So if you kind of look at a map and look at the land masses, 12,000 is not a lot in comparison to 150,000. So yeah, yeah, I I, I suspect that the numbers used to be much higher. Okay. And what is in place? Is there any laws in place to try protect them? Are they a protected species? Yes, they're an EU protected species and they're protected within Ireland. Um, it was the 1976 Wildlife Act. Grey seals were the first marine mammals to be protected in the world. Um, so that really, really helped them start to recover. But it is a slow recovery because um, it's only about 50% of pups actually make it to adulthood. Re- in, in the wild, mm-hmm. just naturally. Okay. Yeah, there's a really a high mortality rate in the pups. Do they, they just, only have one pup every time? Yeah, one pup per year. Okay. Just on population, it is important to note that gray seals have recovered in Ireland. We're not at threat of them becoming endangered. Um, however, worldwide, there's only about 300, 350,000 gray seals in the world, wow. which is fewer than African elephants. So between Ireland and the UK, this is a significant portion of the worldwide population of gray seals. So that's why this is a very important place to protect them. And of course, common seals, um, their numbers are in a decline and they are a species of special concern here in Ireland. Wow, I had no idea like that this because 
it's not something you don't see seals too often and when you do it's like oh wow you almost have this thing like oh they're just visiting that they're but they actually they belong here like they really do this they is... do and and they do rely on land um a lot of people have the notion that they belong in the water and therefore if you see a seal on land it must be hurt it must be sick it's you know, it's um, beached, let's get it back in the water. But it is natural behavior for them to come up and they actually rely heavily on coastlines. This is where they have to have their pups. This is where they molt. This is where they nurse and they have to rest. Mm -hmm. They can hold their breath for up to 30 minutes, but that means that they have nitrogen build up in their blood. So they have to rest. They have to reoxygenate their blood and they have to save up energy for their next hunt. So it's very important for them to have nice protected areas where they can just haul out and not be bothered. But unfortunately, there is a lot of um, activity, human activity on the coastlines. And also due to the increase in severity and frequency of storms, we're losing some of our coastlines. So some of these areas that were protected beaches where they could come and rest, it's now getting washed away. And then the storms can have a really, really detrimental effect on the seals, particularly the gray seals, because... They have their pups in the autumn and winter, which is when the storms tend to happen. Mm. So it's just really poor timing. And because the storms are getting worse, that could explain why there's only about 50% success rate of pups reaching it to adulthood. So before we get into the horrible nitty gritty of why they're ending up here, what would happen if there were no seals? Like, because they're a keystone species... I presume it'd be detrimental. Absolutely. So a keystone species just means that it has a disproportionate effect on its environment. So if you remove a keystone species, it's going to have long-reaching ramifications. So they're apex predators. So therefore, they sort of set the pace for the whole food chain. Um, if they are removed from the food chain, then their uh, their primary prey could become overpopulated, which might sound good at first, but then they could deplete the food down a level of the trophic, mm-hmm. like the next trophic level. So therefore it can actually have the whole system crash. Now, a really great example of this is the wolves in Yellowstone Park. Um, so as some people may have heard, the U.S. at one point decided to eradicate wolves in Yellowstone National Park. The reason at the time was because they wanted the, their prey species to improve for hunting. So ungulates like deer and elk. So they removed all the wolves and what ended up happening was the entire landscape changed. Because there were no predators to keep control over the elk and deer populations, they became overpopulated. They depleted all of the food, they foraged everything. Um, So then they were sick and starving. It actually changed the whole ecosystem because with the deer eating all the vegetation, there was no vegetation to stabilize the river and stream banks. So therefore, all of the rivers became just straight channels, um, which impacted things like beaver and otter because there were no new trees that were able to grow because the deer had eaten them all in the small stages. They lost a lot of bird species. Just basically everything was affected. So fast forward to, I think it was the 1980s, they reintroduced a pack of wolves to Yellowstone and immediately everything changed. The behavior of the prey changed. They could no longer just openly forage on whatever they wanted. They had to actually like start hiding from the wolves. So therefore, trees were able to come back. Shrubs were able to come back. 
the riverbanks became more established because of the vegetation. So the rivers became nice, productive ecosystems again. The beavers came back. The otters came back. The songbirds came back. And this is just, this is a really great example of a keystone species being the apex predator and how important to the whole system it is. And it might not be immediately obvious until after you remove them. So in Ireland, gray seals are our wolves. So therefore, if we remove that keystone species, it could have really long reaching impacts. Yeah. Um, with the climate crisis happening now we don't want to chance it and (laughs) let's not and seals are cute so we really need to keep them as well (laughs) so going back to what you started saying there about the storms and human interaction on the beach which is one of the reasons why they end up needing to be rescued and rehabilitated so can I guess let's go into now of what's happening that they do end up needing care. Yes, and that is the first question everyone asks. Why do you need to rehab seals? What's going on with them? As you said, the, the probably the two most obvious ones is direct human impact, which is just people walking up to seals on the beach. And oftentimes it's well-intended. They, they don't realize they're hurting them. And most of the time they see a fluffy little seal pup and they just want to approach it. They want to pet it. They want to take pictures of it. But it's really important to resist that urge because you can actually put the survival of that animal in jeopardy, especially with the young seal pups. They are very reliant on their mother's milk. Seal milk has the highest fat content in the animal kingdom. It's over 50% fat. So that's very, very necessary for these seal pups to gain weight as quickly as possible so they are strong enough to withstand this really challenging habitat that they're living in. Um, So if they don't get that milk, that sustenance, then it really starts them on a poor footing for survival. Um, If they're abandoned by their mother too young, they're not going to have enough weight on them. They're not going to be strong enough. Their immune system is not going to be as strong and they can starve. Also, uh, we have had reports of people that kind of, they think that the seal's out on land, therefore it must need to get back in the water. And we've heard of people dragging seals into the water. If a seal is on the beach, it's there for a reason. It's resting or it can't enter the water. Gray seal pups in particular, for the first two weeks, they have a white fluffy coat. It's called lanugo, and it's not waterproof. So it's very important for them to stay dry during that time period, because if they do get wet, they can drown, they can become hypothermic, it can be very detrimental. But as soon as they molt, they've got a waterproof coat, they can go in the water and they can learn to hunt and do everything they need to do to survive as a seal. So that actually brings us to the storms. When there is a big, severe storm, the tide comes up higher than the high tide line. Usually these storms happen, you know, once a hundred years, but now we're seeing them almost every year um, due to climate change. So it's really impacting the seal pups because during that critical first two weeks where they need to stay on the beach and stay nice and dry and protected, these storms come in and they sweep these seals off the rookeries. So a good example was 2017, we had Hurricane Ophelia, which was a really bad storm. We had over 300 phone calls for seals that needed to be rescued the following week. Um, So we became at capacity really quickly. And there were some rookeries that lost up to 80% of their pups. When you say a rookery, is that like a shoal kind of on a beach where they would, that would be their habitat, that's where they would go on land and they would rely on that? Exactly. So it's basically a protected beach that historically has served as a good habitat for the mothers to have their pups, protected from humans, protected from the sea, and 
because of our changing coastlines, they're kind of becoming less and fewer of those areas. Yeah. So sometimes there are some, some beaches that will have thousands of seals all come to have their pups. So you can imagine if during that critical time where so many pups are on the beach, if a storm comes all the way up and washes out those pups, a lot of them are going to be lost. And that yeah. can have a long-term effect on the whole population. And you said 80%, was it? 80, yeah. Were lost in Stormophilia. That's crazy. And then there was Storm Brian after that. Mm-hmm. And then Storm Emma last year. Like they, yeah, they keep coming. They keep so... coming and it is relentless. And that year in particular was the first time that we reached capacity with 66 seals in our care at a single time, which was way beyond our capacity. And we really, really struggled. Um, this was the first time that we had to close our doors to new intakes. We weren't able to take in any more seals, which was very unfortunate. We had to leave about 30 on the beach around the coastline. And since we are the only seal rescue center in the Republic of Ireland if they don't if we can't take them there's nowhere else for them to go so unfortunately some of those seals did pass away because we just couldn't take anymore and we never know when that's going to happen again Mm -hmm. we could be looking at more hurricanes this upcoming autumn we just don't know but we're we're trying our best to be prepared and just take it as it comes yeah that's all you can do really and so storms are a huge issue people approaching them trying to bring them back in the water it shouldn't happen and I presume plastic is obviously an issue as well plastic is a big issue um, every piece of plastic that has ever been produced is still in existence today and by the year 2050 there will be no- more plastic in the ocean than fish and seals are opportunistic predators so they'll kind of just eat whatever's around so if they're mistaking plastic for fish then that means they're eating it and it can become um, block. It blocks up their stomach basically. And we have had seals that have passed away due to eating plastic. Mm-hmm. So wasn't there a seal who passed away from eating a crisp packet? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So crisp packets in particular, they've got that reflective uh, coating on the inside to keep your crisps nice and fresh. Um, and that reflective coating kind of mimics fish scales. So if you're a young seal pup learning the ways of the world, your instinct is telling you to eat this thing. Um, and they don't chew their food. They swallow it whole. Mm-hmm. So likely she didn't realize her mistake until it was too late. Um, so this particular seal, her name was Karma. And she was a gray seal pup. And she did pass away in care. And we got a necropsy done in order to see what had caused it. And unfortunately, it was a crisp packet. Um, and there's just absolutely trillions of pieces of plastic that are accumulating in the ocean. So if one, it took only one piece of plastic yeah. to kill the seal. So it just kind of gives you an idea of how many animals are being exposed to this. And most of it's happening out at the sea. So we're not yeah. seeing it. And that's why seals are such an important indicator species. They are able to show us what is going on in their environment. And it's not just affecting them. These are the same threats that affect dolphins and whales and sea turtles and seabirds and everything else. So they're kind of giving a voice to these populations. Mm-hmm. You were showing some footage to me earlier of like people in uh, di- someone diving off the coast of Bali and like they're swimming through like actual just plastic floating everywhere. It looks ridiculous. But this is happening in Ireland as well. Like it's not always 
just oh the faraway countries who don't have a good waste disposal or recycling system like it is happening here it is ireland is the biggest producer of plastic waste in the eu per capita so it is happening here and you know we we were shipping off our plastic to china um and recently china has stopped accepting plastic from europe so now we really are kind of under the pressure to figure out what to do with it ourselves. Um, and the best thing that we can all do is use reusable items, stay away from one-time use plastic, because it might serve you for a few minutes, but it's going to persist in the environment indefinitely. Plastic does not biodegrade. It breaks down into smaller pieces and that becomes microplastic. Um, microplastics are much more cryptic than larger piece of, pieces of plastic. So if you have a seal and you find a big piece of plastic in its stomach or it's entangled in plastic, it's very obvious to see that that is damaging. But microplastics take a longer time to show effect. So it's basically, it's a piece of plastic that's smaller than five millimeters and it absorbs toxins from the environment. And once it's consumed by any animal those toxins start to leach out into its body. So it bioaccumulates up the food chain and it really has a big impact on apex predators such as seals and humans. Um, we share a lot of the same food. So these things are affecting both of us. And um, it is something that I think we're going to be seeing a lot more. The, the amount of plastic that's in the environment is relatively new. Uh, most of it has been produced recently. Mm -hmm. So I think we are probably going to be the first generation that's exposed to a lifetime of plastics in our environment. So we're sort of the guinea pigs. And the seals that are mm -hmm. wrapped in plastic, the when they're entangled, it's usually a fishing net that they're entangled in. So are these nets that have either been cut off or like broken off in the sea that they're just caught in? So about, it's been estimated that 40% of the plastic that's in the ocean is actually disposed fishing gear. The the really dark reality of ghost net is what it's called um, when it's no longer attached to a boat. And it's just kind of floating around on its own. The worst part about it is just because it's not attached to a, a boat and it's not actively being used does not mean that it's not continuously catching animals and so it'll it'll catch an animal and then the animal will die and then more predators are attracted to that it's food and then they get caught so it just continuously catches and kills animals um, out in the wild now commercial fishing gear is a huge huge issue but it's not just commercial fishing gear it's actually um, anglers that kind of just cut lines and let them go a lot of it can be that as well yeah. um, so like fishing line that is entangling an animal it's it's particularly gruesome because that monofilament is very very thin and so it cuts through the tissue really deeply and so it can cause really horrific wounds We've had a few animals that have been brought in entangled, and um, most of them, if you're able to get your hands on them, then you're able to remove it. You can, you know, treat the wounds, get them nice and healthy again, and release them. But what makes it really difficult is a lot of times entangled animals are otherwise healthy. Mm. which means they can get away. And yeah. once a seal hits water, it is absolutely impossible to yeah. catch. Trust me, we've tried. <laughs> um, so it it's really bad when the animal, because it's an otherwise healthy animal, 
it can get away and so you can't catch it. So you kind of just have to watch from afar as the condition slowly degrades. And then once it gets weak enough, then you can catch it and remove it. So it's, it's pretty rough to have yeah. to just watch that and feel helpless. Yeah. And another issue that they have as well is bacteria in the water, like um, water pollution that isn't like a physical thing like plastic. So sewage, some sewage and stuff is ending up in the seas. Yes. Uh, sewage ends up in the sea and pesticides, fertilizers, um, runoff from roads. Basically anything that we're doing on land eventually makes its way out to sea where it starts to accumulate. Um, and as bioindicator species, seals are living in this water. They're eating the fish. They're exposed to it. So it can affect their immune system if they're exposed to all these toxins and pollutants. So something like a secondary infection, like a, like a cold. Otherwise, a healthy animal would be able to fight off a cold. But if they're living in a polluted environment, they're less able to fight these secondary infections. So something that they should be able to recover from can actually become fatal. Wasn't there an example you mentioned earlier where there was a specific area off the coast of Ireland that a lot of sick seals were coming from? Yes. So this was summer 2017. So before Hurricane Ophelia, it was a very hard year for us at SRI. Um, So that summer we had a lot of common seals that were brought in and they all were exhibiting similar symptoms. It was called mouth rot. So it was basically just black ulcers in their gums and the roof of their mouths. Some of them, their teeth were falling out and in extreme cases, their jawbones were actually crumbling. And this was antibiotic resistant. So we were trying to treat it. It wasn't effective. And these were young, fragile animals. So many of them did not survive. Um, So once we lost about 50% of our commons, which is a very, very high rate, we looked at the map and we realized that a lot of them were coming from the same waters. So we contacted that county council and we let them know, you know, there's, there's something going on in the water. And so they did some water quality testing. And as it turns out, there was high levels of bacteria in the water. Um, so they ended up closing down those waters to swimming. So this is just a really great example of a bioindicator species giving you a, an early red flag. This is something that we need to look into and we need to take seriously. Yeah, it happens all across Ireland, like even Bull Island in Dublin has constantly been closed down because of bacteria in the water. I was out there walking last summer actually and there was like plastic just like floating in in the sea as well with the seaweed. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's all problematic and as well, while I think of it, because sewer sometimes ends up in the seas, that means everything you flush ends up in the seas. Absolutely. So what we can do to kind of um, do our part to mitigate against these issues is to um, just watch what you flush. Anything that is plastic that's not going to break down, it could very well end up out at sea. So that's baby wipes. Baby wipes are made from plastic. Uh, We do a lot of beach cleans and we always find lots and lots of baby wipes. Um, I think that a lot of people think that they're biodegradable, but they're not. Earbuds, just, yeah, anything that's not going to break down. But it doesn't even need to be flushed to end up at sea. Um, A lot of things that end up in the gutter, they go down the drainage system, the sewers, and that ends up out at sea as well. 
And a big thing is, you know, we're talking about things you can see, the plastics, but just like you said, there's things that are not so obvious, like the pollutants. And that is a big problem as well. And the reason that we're seeing such a high rate of this is because there's so much agricultural land in Ireland with streams that kind of run through it. And it's very important to have trees um, called riparian buffers on the banks of these rivers and streams because it keeps the sediments and the fertilizers and the toxins and the pollutants and everything from running off unabated directly into the streams. Is that one type of tree or is that like a group of tree species? A riparian buffer is just referring to where the trees are. Okay. Um, Native tree species are the best ones because they survive the best. They'll grow nice and fast. They're conditioned for this environment. But really any vegetation along river and stream beds will really help in um, just stabilizing the riverbanks, keeping that structure, keeping toxins out of the river. And then also, of course, providing habitat for uh, animals and pollinators and sequestering carbon and filtering the air. So um, just planting trees along rivers and stream beds is a really great way to um, help the environment in so many different ways. But the important thing to remember is that these ecosystems are very much interconnected. So what we're doing on land is affecting the streams, it's affecting the marine environment, and it's affecting marine biodiversity. You mentioned earlier about the forestry in Ireland. It's after going way down, isn't it? Or what's native here? It is. So during medieval times, um, Ireland was about 70 to 80 percent forests. And now we're looking at about 11% forest cover. Out of that 11%, only 2% is native forest. So about 9 of that 11% is getting clear cut to produce wood and paper products. Um, So 2% is not a lot. (laughs) You know, it's definitely something that we can all work towards. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do, we've done some tree planting events um, and we're really, that's, the next step of, of kind of the proactive conservation programs that we're doing at SRI is we'd really like to start ramping up tree planting, especially along rivers and streams, because like we're saying, it, it really promotes marine biodiversity while counteracting climate change, providing wide biodiversity on land. It just really, um, it kind of solves all the problems at once. <laughs> yeah, and cleaning our air as well, and considering the Amazon forest um, yeah. tragedy happening, hopefully it's stopped by the time this episode is released, but a lot of damage would obviously be done, so we really needed to plant a lot more trees, and you guys are on the road to that, and you were saying earlier that hopefully you'll have like a little nursery. Yes, we were were just awarded a grant from the Wexford County Council to build a tree nursery. So we're going to start having lots of little native trees that we'll be able to plant, um, and as they grow, we'll be able to put them in the ground. So we're going to have lots of opportunities for people to be able to participate in that, and we're going to be um, monitoring these sites, and um, there's apps. There's actually an app called Curio, where you can drop a point where you've planted a tree and then over time we can actually measure the progress of the trees. Oh, amazing. So this will be hopefully a long-term project. We'd love to get lots of people involved in it. Um, But yeah, we just need to build our tree nursery first. (laughs) Yes, very good. That's very good. So I guess there's something as well that we kind of need to address. I know... I know that seals eat fish. (laughs) I also know there are people who make their living off of fishing. So I presume, especially with the nets and everything, there's probably some dialogue between 
seal rescue people and you know people trying to conserve seal populations and then people trying to protect their their living be them fishers and so like what what's the situation there like what's happening so this is a question that we get asked a lot and it's very much something that we would love to open up a dialogue and start working with the fishing community because we're not trying to take away people's jobs but the reality is that seals are native species they've always been here And the fish stock decline has really only become so dire in recent years. So sometimes people like to attribute the fish stock decline to seals, and that just mathematically does not make sense. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the particular species that a lot of people are concerned about is the iconic salmon. So salmon stocks are in a huge decline worldwide um, and they're migratory fish so they have to come inland they come up through rivers and streams in order to spawn now there are i believe 174 rivers in ireland that are historically salmon breeding grounds almost every single one of them has been altered in some way either through dams or some sort of structural change that is a barrier to, to salmon being able to travel up and to spawn. Okay. So if these animals can't repopulate, of course we're going to see a decline. So we really need to look at the whole system. Um, now, another thing is water quality. So we're talking about all this sediment, all these pollutants going into the rivers and streams. What ends up happening is it's smothering all this benthic organisms. So when Salmon lay their eggs, they lay them um, on the bottom of the riverbeds, and they have to sit there and kind of mature. Now, if all these sediments are coming down on top of the eggs, they're not going to be able to hatch. They're not getting oxygen, um, so they're just getting smothered. So so even the salmon that are able to reach the spawning grounds and lay their eggs, a lot of these eggs aren't surviving. So what we're trying to do is to work proactively to protect the habitat, Therefore, to protect marine biodiversity, increase fish stocks, and this is something that benefits the fishing industry and it benefits the seals. So it doesn't have to be us or them. We actually really want to work with the fishing industry Mm -hmm. to promote marine biodiversity for the benefit of everyone. Are you being hit with any kind of blockades by them? Like, do you were saying earlier, there's some kind of license you need to apply for to be able to shoot a seal if they are eating or at your fi- your fishing net or something <laughs> so that that's something that does happen yeah so these um they are protected animals so it is illegal to hunt them um you can apply for a license but you know there's a lot that can go on that people aren't seeing you know just like the bycatch and everything else that's happening out at sea. So we have had reports of illegal culls. Um, there have actually been some some that have happened in the past. And our, our answer to that is we just really want to open that dialogue. So we're trying to um, do some outreach with the fishing community and kind of explain that like there is a way for, for everything to benefit. Um, now, the seals, they're just trying to survive, just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there's a fish stock decline, then they are going to have to eat whatever fish there are. So as the resource diminishes, it becomes more competitive. You know, we just, we really want to do our best to just protect the entire ecosystem. And we are promoting local sustainable fisheries. Um, you know, there's uh, worldwide fish stocks are on a decline by 80, 90%. This is 
unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So if we keep in the direction that we're going, then fishermen are not going to have a livelihood into the future. Yeah. Seals are not going to have food into the future. So either we can address the issue now before it's too late, or we wait until this happens and people lose jobs and we lose species right and left. Yeah. So um, we we would like to work with them and, and maybe help them become more sustainable. Um, but yeah, we, we understand that the fishing industry is necessary. I mean, we have to feed fish to our seals. So we're not saying that get rid of fish, fisheries altogether. We're just saying that we need to approach this on an ecological level. level. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not as simple as just blaming the seals for eating all the fish. Yeah. And unfortunately, these like the planet is constantly evolving and humans have just done so much damage to it that we kind of need to work and like you said made a really good point that they're all going to lose their jobs like they might feel you know people are advocating eat less fish if you want to save fish you know don't use straws or actually don't eat fish but then they're like that's my livelihood and I could totally understand that because there's people out there who have for years it's their family tradition they're all fisher fishermen fisherwomen mm-hmm. in their family and this is what they do but like so many things we have to kind of make a gradual kind of move and adjust transition to something that is more sustainable whatever that is but yeah something ha- it can stay the way it is or absolutely and it's it's kind of similar to the work that I was doing in um, Equatorial Guinea in West Africa so I started and I was working um, doing research on endangered primates and sea turtles in this uh, scientific reserve on this island became very quickly apparent that the biggest threat to these animals was bushmeat hunting, so illegal hunting. Now, I wouldn't tell people, no, don't feed your family. Just, you know, don't do that. Just stop. The best way to approach it was to give them an alternative livelihood, Mm -hmm. a sustainable alternative. So we started, um, we established a nature center and an ecotourism program. So very quickly... Um, these people, instead of having to hunt and kill the animals, they were able to make much more money sustainably by taking people out on tourism trips. So camping trips and they were porters and they were guides and they started to see the animals alive as a much more valuable resource than the animals dead. And so it's not either jobs or save the environment. You just have to figure out a way that both can succeed. And it was very, very effective it, it, it was kind of the same comparison. It was either continue to hunt until these species go extinct and then there's nothing to hunt anymore. You don't have a job anyways. Or if you stop before it comes to that, then you can actually make more of a living off of the survival of these animals. That's, yeah, that's a really good point. Like things like that could be done off the coast of Ireland, like boat tours and stuff Eco-tourism like that. is a growing industry in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to come to Ireland. It's beautiful. And seals are an iconic species. Yeah. So there's so much opportunity to be had there. Absolutely. Okay, so almost completely forgot to talk more about the seals that you have here. <laughs> so you see a seal or there's a, a seal that needs rescuing and it arrives here. How is it rehabilitated and what's like the, what's the turnover 
for seals that come in? Yeah, so we shoot for about two to four months to have them from intake to release. Of course, there's a sliding scale. Some of these seals take a really long time. Some go through really quickly. Uh, Most of the time, it depends on the condition the seal is when it's brought into us. Uh, Many times it's injuries. Many times it's very, very thin. A lot of times if they're orphans, they don't know how to eat yet. They didn't learn that from their mother. So the process is basically get them nice and healed, give them antibiotics, antiparasitics, get the injuries healed. Um, And then we start tube feeding them. Um, First, just electrolytes to get them nice and hydrated. Um, Dehydration is the biggest threat because their organ systems start to shut down. So we'll have to get them hydrated. And then we wean them onto fish soup. So it's just blended up um, herring and it's got salmon oil in it and electrolytes. So all this like really nutritious stuff and we'll tube feed them. It's just a tube that goes into their mouth, down their esophagus, directly into their stomach. And we put the fish soup in a syringe and just put it right in. It just takes a few minutes. They don't have gag reflexes, so it doesn't hurt them. And it's the only way to give them life-saving nutrients. After they're stabilized, we'll start teaching them to eat solid food on their own. Common seals spend more time with their mothers in the wild. So a lot of it is learned behavior. Without that learned behavior, they can be very slow to learn how to eat. Gray seals, on the other hand, they're a lot more instinctive. So they can learn to eat fish on their own very quickly. Um, Once they're eating fish on their own in the bath and they've gained enough weight, then we can move them out to the pools. Uh, And that's where they really just learn competitive behaviors. They learn social behaviors. They develop swim muscles. They learn how to dive. Um, And then once they hit about 35 kilos, they're determined that they're big enough that they can be released. And if otherwise they're competing really well, if they're exhibiting behaviors that show that they have a really good chance of survival in the wild, we'll go ahead and release them back to the coastline where we found them. And do they usually, would they be in, uh, what's the word, like shoals or groups or are they independent kind of animals? So they're not as gregarious as a lot of other species of pinnipeds. Like you kind of see sea lions and elephant seals and they all just pile on top of each other. Gray seals and common seals aren't really like that. I wouldn't call them solitary. They kind of hang out in loose groups, but I think it's more due to the availability of resources. If there's a particular place where there's lots of fish, or if there's a particular place where there's really nice haul-out sites, you'll see a lot of seals. But they don't really have um, really clear stru- like social structures mm. or family groups. Um, they kind of tend to move around quite a bit. But they do tend to come to the same coastlines to breed and molt. So they're rehabilitated, they're released into the wild. Do you have, would you have an idea of how many seals you have released into the wild at Seal Rescue? Yeah, we've got all of that documented. I don't have that number off the top of my head. Uh, no worries. <laughs> but it's definitely in the hundreds. Oh, wow. Um, so, and especially with the commons, every individual counts because the numbers are small and they're on yeah. the decline. Um, now, we don't have a ton of information on individual seals after they've been released. With rehab, no news is good news. Um, We do tag all of our seals with a unique identifying number. It's a little plastic flipper tag that they'll keep all their life. So um, if, if you're able to read that number, 
then that means it's probably not doing so well because you're able to approach it. Mm -hmm. But a healthy seal that's doing well, you're not going to be able to get close enough to read the number. So we do often get photos reported of healthy seals that have flipper tags. It's hard for us to identify the exact Mm -hmm. individual because we can't read the number. But there have been a handful of cases where seals we've released have either washed up later or have turned up um, at a rehab center in the UK. Okay. Um, in fact, last year there was a gray seal that was released in Galway, and less than a month later she turned up in Cornwall in the UK. So that's a four-month-old seal that was able to swim all that way. So they do move around. Um, and we do have close connections with all the seal rescue centers in the UK and Europe. So if anyone sees our tag, they know who to contact. And then we can look on our database, see exactly what individual that is, when it came in, when it was released. And it's just really, it's a growing amount of data that's going to be really important down the road. That's amazing. And the seals that you have here, like, oh my God, they break your heart. They're just so cute. (laughs) And those big eyes, I'm not able for it. So you have space here. I know you said earlier that you have, you were at 66 capacity at one point and that was like really pushing your mark. Like here, I think I saw on the board you have 19 at the moment. Mm -hmm. I expect that to go up because we're coming into the to the autumn season definitely yeah um what how do your releases work then you release usually you release a couple at a time don't yes you? we do release um uh, at least two at a time um so how it works is we'll return the seal to the general coastline um where they were rescued now we're not going to return them necessarily to the specific beach just because sometimes we have to rescue seal because it's in a bad area a pup might be on a beach where there's lots of people there's nowhere to hide out lots of dogs left off leads which can be very dangerous to seals they can't make a quick escape so oftentimes they'll get attacked by dogs and it can kill pups um, but we will, we've got kind of areas where we know it's good habitat and we'll kind of release them there. But yeah, it's, it's basically just, we'll invite people to come join us. Um, we'll always invite adopters and members and rescuers and, um, we'll just bring the cage out on the beach and we'll open the gate and it's just let them go. And it's kind of funny. There's always, there's always some that take a while to get their sea legs, but I kind of describe it as a little kid's first day at school. You know, this is the big open ocean. This is the first time they're really seeing it. And it's scary. It's a new place, but you see the instinct kind of take over. And some of them just shoot out like a cannon, (laughs) but some are always just kind of looking back at us and they don't really know what to do. Um, But eventually they all make it into the water. We've never had to re-rescue one. Oh, amazing. That's so good to hear. So... If you see a seal on a beach, when do we call you? Like, what? what's the sign that it needs help? Most well, of the time, I presume we just leave them alone. Yes, the most important thing you can do is just respect wildlife from a distance. Stay at least 100 meters away. Um, you can call our rescue hotline number. It's operational 24 hours a day if you have any questions at all. We'd rather get healthy seals reported to us than not have unhealthy seals reported to us. Um, but we'll ask questions. We'll ask about the size, the condition. We'll ask for photos. We can judge a lot based on the photos on whether it needs to be rescued or not. If it is 
is determined that this seal is alone, it's sick, it's not doing well, then we will call our rescue network. Um, we've got over 900 volunteers nationwide that can go check on the seal, and they've been trained how to safely and effectively lift and transport the seal to us. Amazing. Okay. Now, you mentioned there about the seal. It's If it's on its own, it's on the, like, it might be okay. If a mother... Is pretty much like a bird's egg in a nest. I was always told as a child, don't ever touch a bird's egg because if the bird smells the human, they won't come back. It's somewhat similar to seals, kind of, isn't it? Well, I've actually heard that that's a myth and that oh, the birds will go back. I don't know. It's a big debate. I, I've definitely heard <laughs> that 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 not necessarily a bird Maybe will... Maybe my mom was just trying to keep me out of the bird's nest, Likely. which I could understand. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, oftentimes, so seals are not like bears. They're not like mama bear where they'll like, fight to defend their cub. Because they only stay with their pups for short periods of time, there's not a super strong mother-pup bond. It's really just a few weeks of nursing and then they leave the seal, the pup on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, a mother seal might abandon her pup if it, she perceives it as just too dangerous to get out of the water and nurse it. So if a pup is left on the beach with especially gray seals since until they molt, they can't enter the water, the mother will leave it for hours at a time, but she'll come back to it. So if you see a pup and it looks like it's been abandoned and you approach it, likely she's nearby, likely she's watching you, and she could end up abandoning it because you've approached it. Mm-hmm. And you're only trying to help. You're trying to yep. see, but like genuinely might be helped just to stay away. You said at least 100 meters. At least 100 meters. It's important to know that any change in behavior of an animal because of your presence is considered disturbance. So even if it's just looking at you, it means it could be stressed, it could otherwise be resting, it could be otherwise looking for a meal, it could be otherwise like looking for other predators. If it's got its attention on you, it's disturbance. And that, after long periods of exposure, just constantly being disturbed, it can really have a detrimental impact. I mean, these animals are fighting for survival mm-hmm. um, at all times. So it could just be that little extra push in the direction where it's just not going to survive. And there are times where if there's a lot of seals on the beach and you approach, they'll start an actual stampede and they'll all just rush into the water and they can crush pups that way. Um, It can stress them out. They can get injured. And then sometimes if it's a rocky coastline, they will actually plummet off the coast just to get away from you because they're perceiving you as a predator. So Some people might remember something similar from the infamous walrus scene in oh, yes. the most recent Attenborough thing. So seals do that as well. Oh my gosh, that was scarring. I yeah, know exactly what I, you're talking I, about. I like a lot of people, I presume, listening to this might, might be interested in that kind of stuff. It's one of those things that you just, like, I, I couldn't watch it. I was in tears, like, just that was really at the idea of it. But and that has happened to seals as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of, like, groups of people, because they're, they're fascinating, you know? Like, we, we love animals and we love, mm-hmm. I know the walruses is, was a, specifically a climate crisis oh. and they've got no land left, but seals, the humans, like, you know, they're so cute and you want to go up and you want to take photographs of them or, or pet them. They look mm-hmm. so fluffy. I have to really resist. Oh, I get it. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> But like they, it just, it's so, so damaging. Like there needs to be that, that level of 
yeah. respect their like the priority really really needs to be just avoiding anything to harm the animals and your approach your presence your curiosity can harm the animals mm-hmm. so it's very important to maintain that distance to keep dogs on a lead when you're on the beach um, and anyone listening to this is now our eyes and ears on the coastline. So if you do see a seal on the beach and you see people approaching it, please don't be afraid to speak up and let them know this is a protected species. It's illegal to harass them. It's also dangerous because they can bite. They can spread zoonotic diseases. Um, and it's harmful. It could actually put their survival at risk. Yeah. Good point to all you listeners out there. Remember, you're now volunteering for Seal Rescue Ireland, okay? <laughs> That's what you're doing. So, and just to reiterate on the dogs and the leash thing, they, it's it's also for the dog safety. Like, it's not just the dogs would be go up and start fighting with it, but like, oh, yeah. seals are fairly strong. Like, oh, okay. there, I, there was a little tiny baby, few days old grey seal out there. Start, start like, <laughs> really going after one of the volunteers because he didn't come into his face and everything like yeah. that. We have to handle just even the little newborn babies. We have to handle them with extreme care. We actually wear Kevlar to feed them. And you can ask any of the interns that are working with these seals every day. Um, They can be very dangerous. They definitely will bite. Um, And that's good. If they're feisty, then that's good. We want to see them angry and aggressive because Mm -hmm. that means they have the best chances of survival once Mm -hmm. they're released. But these seals, especially gray seals, the bulls can get over 300 kilos. They can do massive damage. So just for your own safety and the safety of your dogs, please give wildlife space. (laughs) Yeah, keep them on a lead on the beach or at least like a long lead that you can pull them back if needs be. Okay, so let's get into how people can help. So you mentioned you have a rescue network so people can get involved with that, I presume, if they want to put their hand up and be like, yeah, if someone near me sees a seal, I'll go out and check. Absolutely. Everybody, um, we're always looking to recruit new people to our rescue network um, because a lot of these volunteers have full-time jobs, they have families, they have obligations. So it's very rare that we'll call the first volunteer and they're able to go. So if we have a bigger pool of people that we can call, then it's increasing the likelihood that we'll be able to get somebody to respond to that seal. Um, Sometimes, you know, there's areas where it can take days to try to coordinate a rescue and a transport just because we we don't have people in the area that are able to respond at that time. Um, so we do have trainings all over the country um, throughout the year. So if you check our Facebook page and our website, um, we will, we're always announcing when the upcoming trainings are happening. Amazing. I'll link all of that, including your hotline number in the show notes. That'll all be, that'll all be linked. Yes. Um, so you can check out below for that. And you also have, of course, Adopt-A-Seal and membership programs. Yes. So membership program is ongoing support. There's different levels um, depending on how much you can contribute. Um, And that's really great because during the summer months, we have lots of visitors coming through the door. We've got over 35,000 visitors a year that come to our center here in Court Town. But then, you know, at the end of the summer, it slows down. The kids go back to school. It's no longer holiday visiting tourist time. So we have a lot fewer people coming through the center. Um, So memberships are really great because it spreads out that support throughout the whole year. Mm -hmm. And during the winter is when we go through the most fish. Um, I think when we had 66 seals in our care, we were going through two tons a week. So that's a lot 
of fish that's our biggest expense. Um, and that's when we don't have tourists coming through the door. Yeah. So memberships are really great. Adoption program is just as good. It's um, a once-off payment and you get to adopt that seal. And no, it doesn't mean you get to take the seal home with you <laughs> and put it in your bathtub, but you do get a certificate. You get photos, you get a backstory. You'll get all the updates on the seal uh, when it's moved to the pools, when it's eating on its own. And then of course you get invited to the release, which is always very special. And if you come to the release, you might even get the chance to open the cage to release your seal into the wild. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And then you have, do you have volunteers who come and clean here and help here as well? Yes. So we've got varying levels of volunteers here. Um, We have the internship program, which is full time for three months at least. And we have people that come from all over the world to come join us and work with the SEALs. It's really great hands-on experience for people that are, you know, pre-vet or marine biologists. Um, But we also have local volunteers that come in once a week and they, um, are trained on all the same things, but then we also have education programs. We have community outreach programs. We have lots of different things, you know, to head up fundraising and, you know, the tree planting and beach cleans and all that stuff. So we've got a lot of activities and we're always looking for volunteers to lend us their skills. Amazing. And I want to quickly mention this as well, because we actually, I actually talked about this when I interviewed Pat Kane from Reusey, that you guys used to take eco bricks. You still, um, you were taking them at the time I interviewed Pat. So eco bricks for anyone who might not listen to that episode, they're like two litre bottles or 1.5 litre bottles of plastic that you shove non-recyclable soft plastics in and you like make it really, like you can fit a lot in there and they get really heavy and they're rock hard and you can build things with them. Now you guys are at capacity for yes. <laughs> eco bricks at the moment, but do you have a plan? Do you know what you're going to do with them? Yeah, so we had an amazing response um, when we introduced the idea of eco bricks to Ireland, and we had people from Cork offering to bring us van loads of them. And as much as we would love to accept the country's soft plastics <laughs> to avoid them going into the ocean or into landfills, uh, we quickly reached capacity. We have very very limited space in our current site. So unfortunately, we can't accept any more, but we do have hopes to expand. Um, We would really like to use these bricks as building materials, as either a garden wall or actual building structures. But we do encourage people in the various communities to get creative and come up with ideas on your own on how to use these eco bricks. I mean, there's some really great resources out there. Uh, I've heard about eco brick, um, like lawn furniture. Mm -hmm. We've got some stools that we use as furniture in our gift shop. Um, So there's just, there's lots of ideas. I think in, um, in like Nepal, they're using them to build schools. So it's just a great way to take something that's otherwise waste product and potentially destructive and using it as a resource. Yeah. People can make their own eco brick furniture, which is amazing. If there's anyone out there who's like won the lotto and wants to buy (laughs) Sea Rescue Ireland, uh, a new center, that'd be amazing. Like what you have here is such a, I would describe it as a really cute, efficient setup, but it's like all in one. Like your gift shop is also where you do your presentations. Yes. um, And everything. So like you you guys are pretty much are due and deserve an expansion yeah. I think so I think we've outgrown um we've outgrown the the current setup because we just we have a growing team we have more seals coming in every year we're expanding our programs um so yeah we're definitely looking to branch out and grow 
but it is important just to mention about the plastics. So eco bricks must be made correctly mm-hmm. from the very, very beginning. They need to be jam packed as tightly as possible. There mm-hmm. can't be any air. Otherwise it'll compromise the integrity of the brick. And it can also potentially be a fire hazard um, because plastics are flammable if they have oxygen. So you don't want to have any air in those. Now, they're really hard to make properly. It takes a long time and a lot of effort. You really get some upper body strength when mm-hmm. you're making these things. It's kind of therapeutic, though. It's therapeutic, <laughs> and but also I think the most valuable thing about it is it really makes you super aware of every single piece of plastic that you produce. Because if you're out shopping and you're buying something and it's got plastic packaging, you're automatically thinking, I'm going to have to shove this thing into an eco brick. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a disincentive right there. So you actually find that you're buying habits change. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing we can do. We can use our purchasing power to support industries that are not using unnecessary packaging, that are using sustainable items, um, that are just kind of fostering like the protection of the environment. And collectively, our purchasing power is really what's going to make a difference. Definitely. Now, before we finish, you're somewhat of an activist and you work in like this this area that can be really I presume like really saddening a lot of the time you know how do you kind of deal with that and what advice would you give to other people who are like you know the weight of the climate crisis kind of you're feeling it and you're experiencing knockbacks and you're just trying to live more sustainably like what advice would you give to somebody my advice is that what you do makes a difference I know it seems it seems hopeless sometimes. Um, if you're looking at the aerial footage of the Amazon burning, it can feel hopeless, trust me. <laughs> but the biggest thing that we can do is try to do our part. Collectively, we can make a difference. And I mean, there, we're promoting things like even something as simple as meat-free Mondays. You know, switching towards a plant-based diet is the biggest thing that we can individually do to lower our carbon footprint. Over 50% of the carbon emissions are tied to the livestock industry. In fact, the Amazon is burning mainly because of the the livestock industry. So if we can just take meat out of our diet one day a week, just one day, we're not saying everybody go vegan or go vegetarian, but if we all collectively reduce our meat intake, that can make a difference. So I guess, yeah, it's just my advice is do your part. What you do does affect the world around you. And that is what motivates me. Um, Every time I talk to someone new and I, I give them this information, they can take that information, they can integrate it into their lives, and hopefully they can spread that message to everyone that they know. And it's just like, it's a growing force. And Mm -hmm. it's not hopeless because just in the last two years since I've been here, I have seen a difference in people's receptiveness to these ideas, you know? And, And people, it's becoming more and more on the forefront of everyone's mind. It's becoming harder and harder to ignore the environmental crisis. Yeah. So that means that we are headed in a direction where we can start to tackle it. And just, yeah, just what you do does make a difference. Really good. So unless there's anything else you want to cover... I think we've covered everything. I hope. <laughs> I think so too. Um, in that case, Melanie, thank you so much for 
inviting me down for the presentation and for taking the time out to of your extremely busy day. Oh my gosh, you're <laughs> only telling me the bur- tip of the iceberg of what you guys have to kind of work at behind the scenes, behind the rehabilitation and everything. So all the office work and all the accounting and all of that stuff is mm. still happening as well. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> there was Melanie from Seal Rescue Ireland I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did she was so amazing to talk to so full of information and I totally want to interview her again she's done a lot of conservation work with other animals in Africa and everything and I'd love to get into it all but maybe in the future who knows I hope you guys learned something from that I learned so much I had no idea that you shouldn't get close to them on a beach there's a lot to take away from this and if you want to read up on any of that again you can check out their website sealrescueireland.org and I also have some show notes on this on bookofleavespodcast.com and there is listed everything we chat about and links to ways you can help how you can adopt a seal Um, their hotline will be there so check those out that's bookofleavespodcast.com and I think that is everything. If you guys would like to support this podcast, I do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash book of leaves podcast. And it's basically a platform where you can just donate a couple of euro to help support the podcast if you so wish. I do this for free and I do it because I love it. But there are a fair few costs included in it from the website to podcast platform hosting. And if you guys want to support that in any way, I would greatly appreciate any amount you could give would be really appreciated thank you for that and also please don't forget to rate this podcast if you're listening to it on apple podcast thank you so much to the people who've done so already review it and for anyone listening on any other platform subscribe if you can or rate and review if you can but please the best thing that you can do to get the word out about the seals and all the other episodes that I have as well is to share it to share it online retweet it share it on Facebook share it to your Instagram story any share is greatly appreciated and especially the good old traditional word of mouth the more people who know and listen the better because I like to think we're spreading awareness and positivity and just good old education on sustainability and everything that's good for the planet so the more people that hear it the better thank you so much okay I don't think there's much else to talk about Don't forget about Rebellion Week from the 7th to the 13th of October. We're going to be blockading a part of Dublin City. Please do get involved. We're going to need people to join us there on the street. You can just show up on the day or turn up to a meeting beforehand. There will be a meeting for Dublin on Wednesday the 2nd of October at 6.30 I think in the Teachers Club in Dublin and check out your local Extinction Rebellion group to see what they're doing to come up and you don't even need to be part of Extinction Rebellion to join in guys. We just need people there on the day for the whole week and you can sleep over if you want there's going to be people camping it's going to be an amazing atmosphere with a really underlying important cause that we're trying to get across here so don't forget to join us for rebellion week hopefully i will see you there have a wonderful monday a wonderful two weeks guys talk to you soon